Chapter Four of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. Section Five. Chapter Four. After a fortnight of rough and fatiguing travel, the colony of Indiana immigrants reached a point in Illinois five miles northwest of the town of Decatur in Macon County. John Hanks, son of that Joseph Hanks, in whose shop at Elizabethtown Thomas Lincoln had learned what he knew of the carpenter's heart, met and sheltered them until they were safely housed on a piece of land which he had selected for them five miles further westward. He had preceded them over a year, and had in the meantime hewed out a few timbers to be used in the construction of their cabin. The place he had selected was on a bluff overlooking the Sangamon River, for these early settlers must always be in sight of a running stream, well supplied with timber. It was a charming and picturesque sight, and all hands set resolutely to work to prepare the new abode. One felled the trees, one hewed the timbers for the cabin while another cleared the ground of its accumulated growth of underbrush. All was bustle and activity. Even old Thomas Lincoln, infused with the spirit of the hour, was spurred to unwanted exertion. What part of the work fell to his lot, our only chronicler, John Hanks, fails to note. But it is conjectured, from the old gentleman's experience in the art of building, that his services corresponded to those of the more modern, supervising architect. With the aid of the oxen and a plough, John and Abe broke up fifteen acres of sod, and Abe and myself, observes Hanks in a matter-of-fact way, split rails enough to fence the place in. As they swung their axes, or with wedge and maul split out the rails, how strange to them the thought would have seemed that those self-same rails were destined to make one of them immortal. If such a vision flashed before the mind of either, he made no sign of it, but each kept steadily on in his simple, unromantic task. Abe had now attained his majority, and began to throw from his shoulders the vexations of parental restraint. He had done his duty to his father, and felt able to begin life on his own account. As he steps out into the broad and inviting world, we take him up for consideration as a man. At the same time we dispense with further notice of his father, Thomas Lincoln. In the son are we alone interested. The remaining years of his life marked no change in the old gentleman's nature. He still listened to the glowing descriptions of prosperity in the adjoining counties, and before his death moved three times in search of better times and a healthy location. In 1851 we find him living on forty acres of land on Goose Nest Prairie in Coles County, Illinois. The land bore the usual encumbrance, a mortgage for two hundred dollars, which his son afterwards paid. On the 17th of January, after suffering for many weeks from a disorder of the kidneys, he passed away at the ripe old age, as his son tells us, of seventy-three years and eleven days. For a long time after beginning life on his own account, Abe remained in sight of the parental abode. He worked at odd jobs in the neighborhood, or wherever the demand for his services called him. 
as late as eighteen thirty one he was still in the same parts and john hanks is authority for the statement that he made three thousand rails for major warnick walking daily three miles to his work during the intervals of leisure he read the few books obtainable and continued the practice of extemporaneous speaking to the usual audience of undemonstrative stumps and voiceless trees his first attempt at public speaking after landing in illinois is thus described to me by john hanks whose language i incorporate after abe got to decatur or rather to macon county a man by the name of posey came into our neighborhood and made a speech it was a bad one and i said abe could beat it i turned down a box and abe made his speech the other man was a candidate abe wasn't abe beat him to death his subject being the navigation of the sangamon river the man after abe's speech was through took him aside and asked him where he had learned so much and how he could do so well abe replied stating his manner and method of reading and what he had read the man encouraged him to persevere for the first time we are now favored with the appearance on the scene of a very important personage one destined to exert no little influence in shaping lincoln's fortunes it is denton offutt a brisk and venturesome business man whose operations extended up and down the sangamon river for many miles having heard glowing reports of john hanks successful experience as a boatman in kentucky he had come down the river to engage the latter's services to take a boatload of stock and provisions to new orleans he wanted me to go badly observes hanks but i waited a while before answering i hunted up abe and i introduced him and john johnston his stepbrother to offutt after some talk we at last made an engagement with offutt at fifty cents a day and sixty dollars to make the trip to new orleans abe and i came down the sagamon river in a canoe in march eighteen thirty one landed at what is now called jamestown five miles east of springfield then known as judy's ferry here johnston joined them and leaving their canoe in charge of one uriah mann they walked to springfield where after some inquiry they found the genial and enterprising offutt regaling himself with a good cheer dispensed at the buckhorn inn this hostelry kept by andrew elliott was the leading place of its kind in the then unpretentious village of springfield the figure of a buck's head painted on a sign swinging in front of the house gave rise to its name offutt had agreed with hanks to have a boat ready for him and his two companions at the mouth of spring creek on their arrival but too many deep potations with the newcomers who daily thronged about the buckhorn had interfered with the execution of his plans and the boat still remained in the womb of the future offutt met the three expectant navigators on their arrival and deep were his regrets over his failure to provide the boat the interview resulted in the trio engaging to make the boat themselves from what was known as congress land they obtained an abundance of timber and by the aid of the machinery at kirkpatrick's mill they soon had the requisite material for their vessel while the work of construction was going on a shanty was built in which they were lodged lincoln was elected cook a distinction he never underestimated for a moment within four weeks the boat was ready to launch offutt was sent for and was present when she slid into the water it was the occasion of much political chat and buncombe 
in which the Whig party and Jackson alike were strangely enough lauded to the skies. It is difficult to account for the unanimous approval of such strikingly antagonistic ideas, unless it be admitted that Offutt must have brought with him some substantial reminder of the hospitality on draft at the Buckhorn Inn. Many disputes arose, we are told, in which Lincoln took part and found a good field for practice and debate. A traveling juggler halted long enough in Sangamon Town, where the boat was launched, to give an exhibition of his art and dexterity in the loft of Jacob Carman's house. In Lincoln's low-crowned, broad-brimmed hat, the magician cooked eggs. As explanatory of the delay in passing up his hat, Lincoln drolly observed, It was out of respect for the eggs, not care for my hat. Having loaded the vessel with pork in barrels, corn and hogs, these sturdy boatmen swung out into the stream. On April 19, they reached the town of New Salem, a place destined to be an important spot in the career of Lincoln. There they met with their first serious delay. The boat stranded on Rutledge's mill dam, and hung helplessly over it a day and a night. We unloaded the boat, narrated one of the crew to explain how they obtained relief from their embarrassing situation. That is, we transferred the goods from our boat to a borrowed one. We then rolled the barrels forward. Lincoln bored a hole in the end, projecting over the dam. The water which had leaked in ran out, and we slid over. Offit was profoundly impressed with this exhibition of Lincoln's ingenuity. In his enthusiasm, he declared to the crowd who covered the hill and who had been watching Lincoln's operation that he would build a steamboat to plow up and down the Sangamon, and that Lincoln should be her captain. She would have rollers for shoals and dams, runners for ice, and with Lincoln in charge, by thunder she'd have to go. After release from their embarrassing, not to say perilous, position, the boat and her crew floated away from New Salem, and passed on to a point known as Blue Banks, where, as the historian of the voyage says, we had to load some hogs bought of Squire Godby. We tried to drive them aboard, but could not. They would run back past us. Lincoln then suggested that we sew their eyes shut. Thinking to try it, we caught them. Abe holding their heads and I their tails, while off had sewed up their eyes. Still they wouldn't drive. At last, becoming tired, we carried them to the boat. Abe received them and cut open their eyes, Johnston and I handing them to him. After thus disposing of the hog problem, they again swung loose and floated downstream. From the Sangamon they passed to the Illinois. At Beardstown, their unique craft, with its sails made of planks and cloth, excited the amusement and laughter of those who saw them from the shore. Once on the bosom of the broad Mississippi, they glided past Alton, St. Louis, and Cairo in rapid succession, tied up for a day at Memphis, and made brief stops at Vicksburg and Natchez. Early in May, they reached New Orleans, where they lingered a month, disposing of their cargo and viewing the sights which the Crescent City afforded. In New Orleans, for the first time, Lincoln beheld the true horrors of human slavery. He saw Negroes in chains, whipped and scourged. Against this inhumanity his sense of right and justice rebelled, and his mind and conscience were awakened to a realization of what he had often heard and read. No doubt, as one of his companions has said, slavery ran the iron into him then and there. 
one morning in their rambles over the city the trio passed a slave auction a vigorous and comely mulatto girl was being sold she underwent a thorough examination at the hands of the bidders they pinched her flesh and made her trot up and down the room like a horse to show how she moved and in order as the auctioneer said that bidders might satisfy themselves whether the article they were offering to buy was sound or not the whole thing was so revolting that lincoln moved away from the scene with a deep feeling of unconquerable hate bidding his companions follow him he said by god boys let's get away from this if ever i get a chance to hit that thing meaning slavery i'll hit it hard this incident was furnished me in eighteen sixty five by john hanks i have also heard mr lincoln refer to it himself in june the entire party including offutt boarded a steamboat going up the river at st louis they disembarked offutt remaining behind while lincoln hanks and johnston started across illinois on foot at edwardsville they separated hanks going to springfield while lincoln and his stepbrother followed the road to coles county to which point old thomas lincoln had meanwhile removed here abe did not tarry long probably not over a month but long enough to dispose most effectually of one daniel needham a famous wrestler who had challenged the returned boatman to a test of strength the contest took place at a locality known as wabash point abe threw his antagonist twice with comparative ease and thereby demonstrated such marked strength and agility as to render him forever popular with the boys of that neighborhood in august the waters of the sangamon river washed lincoln into new salem this once sprightly and thriving village is no longer in existence not a building scarcely a stone is left to mark the place where it once stood to reach it now the traveller must ascend a bluff a hundred feet above the general level of the surrounding country the brow of the ridge two hundred and fifty feet broad where it overlooks the river widens gradually as it extends westwardly to the forest and ultimately to broad pastures skirting the base of the bluff is the sangamon river which coming around a sudden bend from the southeast strikes the rocky hill and is turned abruptly north here is an old mill driven by water power and reaching across the river is the mill dam on which offutt's vessel hung stranded in april eighteen thirty one as the river rolled her turbid waters over the dam plunging them into the whirl and eddy beneath the roar of waters like low continuous distant thunder could be distinctly heard through the village day and night the country in almost every direction is diversified by alternate stretches of hills and level lands with streams between each struggling to reach the river the hills are bearded with timber oak hickory walnut ash and elm below them are stretches of rich alluvial bottom land and the eye ranges over a vast expanse of foliage the monotony of which is relieved by the alternating swells and depressions of the landscape between peak and peak through its bed of limestone sand and clay sometimes kissing the feet of one bluff and then hugging the other rolls the sangamon river the village of new salem which once stood on the ridge was laid out in eighteen twenty eight it became a trading place and in eighteen thirty six 
contained twenty houses and a hundred inhabitants. In the days of land offices and stagecoaches, it was a sprightly village with a busy market. Its people were progressive and industrious. Propitious winds filled the sails of its commerce. Prosperity smiled graciously on its every enterprise, and the outside world encouraged its social pretensions. It had its day of glory, but singularly enough, contemporaneous with the departure of Lincoln from its midst, it went into a rapid decline. A few crumbling stones here and there are all that attest its former existence. How it vanished, observes one writer, like a mist in the morning, to what distant places its inhabitants dispersed, and what became of the abodes they left behind, shall be questions for the local historian. Lincoln's return to New Salem in August 1831 was, within a few days, contemporaneous with the reappearance of Offutt, who made the gratifying announcement that he had purchased a stock of goods which were to follow him from Beardstown. He had again retained the services of Lincoln to assist him when his merchandise should come to hand. The tall stranger, destined to be a stranger in New Salem no longer, pending the arrival of his employer's goods, lounged about the village with nothing to do. Leisure never sat heavily on him. To him there was nothing uncongenial in it, and he might very properly have been dubbed at the time a loafer. He assured those with whom he came in contact that he was a piece of floating driftwood, that after the winter of deep snow he had come down the river with a freshet, borne along by the swelling waters, and aimlessly floating about, he had accidentally lodged at New Salem. Looking back over his history, we are forced to conclude that providence or chance, or whatever power is responsible for it, could not have assigned him to a more favorable refuge. His introduction to the citizens of New Salem, as Mentor Graham, the schoolteacher, tells us, was in the capacity of clerk on an election board. Graham furnishes ample testimony of the facility, fairness, and honesty which characterized the new clerk's work, and both teacher and clerk were soon bound together by the warmest of ties. During the day, when votes were coming in slowly, Lincoln began to entertain the crowd at the polls with a few attempts at storytelling. My cousin, J. R. Herndon, was present and enjoyed this feature of the election with the keenest relish. He never forgot some of Lincoln's yarns, and was fond of repeating them in after years. The recital of a few stories by Lincoln easily established him in the good graces of all New Salem. Perhaps he did not know it at the time, but he had used the weapon nearest at hand, and had won. A few days after the election, Lincoln found employment with one Dr. Nelson, who after the style of dignitaries of later days, started with his family and effects in his private conveyance, which in this instance was a flatboat, for Texas. Lincoln was hired to pilot the vessel through to the Illinois River. Arriving at Beardstown, the pilot was discharged and returned on foot across the sand and hills to New Salem. In the meantime, Offutt's long-expected goods had arrived, and Lincoln was placed in charge. Offutt relied in no slight degree on the business capacity of his clerk. In his effusive way, he praised him beyond reason. He boasted of his skill as a businessman and his wonderful intellectual acquirements. As for physical strength and fearlessness of danger, 
he challenged New Salem and the entire world to produce his equal. In keeping with his widely known spirit of enterprise, Offutt rented the Rutledge and Cameron Mill, which stood at the foot of the hill, and thus added another iron to keep company with the half-dozen already in the fire. As a further test of his business ability, Lincoln was placed in charge of this also. William G. Green was hired to assist him, and between the two a lifelong friendship sprang up. They slept in the store, and so strong was the intimacy between them that when one turned over the other had to do likewise. At the head of these varied enterprises was Offutt, the most progressive man by all odds in the village. He was certainly an odd character, if we accept the judgment of his contemporaries. By some he is given the character of a clear-headed, brisk man of affairs. By others he is variously described as wild, noisy, and reckless, or windy, rattle-brained, unsteady, and improvident. Despite the unenviable traits ascribed to him, he was good at heart, and a generous friend of Lincoln. His boast that the latter could outrun, whip, or throw down any man in Sangamon County was soon tested, as we shall presently see, for as another has truthfully expressed it, honors such as Offutt, accorded to Abe, were to be won before they were worn at New Salem. In the neighborhood of the village, or rather a few miles to the southwest, lay a strip of timber called Clary's Grove. The boys who lived there were a terror to the entire region, seemingly a necessary product of frontier civilization. They were friendly and good-natured. They could trench a pond, dig a bog, build a house. They could pray and fight, make a village, or create a state. They would do almost anything for sport or fun, love or necessity. Though rude and rough, though life's forces ran over the edge of the bowl, foaming and sparkling in pure deviltry for deviltry's sake, yet placed before them a poor man who needed their aid, a lame or sick man, a defenseless woman, a widow, or an orphan child, they melted into sympathy and charity at once. They gave all they had, and willingly toiled or played cards for more. Though there never was under the sun a more generous parcel of rowdies, a stranger's introduction was likely to be the most unpleasant part of his acquaintance with them. They conceded leadership to one Jack Armstrong, a hardy, strong, and well-developed specimen of physical manhood, and under him they were in the habit of cleaning out New Salem whenever his order went forth to do so. Offutt and Bill Clary, the latter skeptical of Lincoln's strength and agility, ended a heated discussion in the store one day over the new clerk's ability to meet the tactics of Clary's Grove by a bet of ten dollars that Jack Armstrong was, in the language of the day, a better man than Lincoln. The new clerk strongly opposed this sort of an introduction, but after much entreaty from Offutt, at last consented to make his bow to the social lions of the town in this unusual way. He was now six feet four inches high, and weighed, as his friend and confidant, William Green, tells us with impressive precision, two hundred and fourteen pounds. The contest was to be a friendly one, and fairly conducted. All New Salem adjourned to the scene of the wrestle. Money, whiskey, knives, and all manner of property were staked on the result. It is unnecessary to go into the details of the encounter. Everyone knows how it ended, 
how at last the tall and angular rail-splitter enraged at the suspicion of foul tactics and profiting by his height and the length of his arms fairly lifted the great bully by the throat and shook him like a rag how by this act he established himself solidly in the esteem of all new salem and secured the respectful admiration and friendship of the very man whom he had so thoroughly vanquished from this time forward jack armstrong his wife hannah and all the other armstrongs became his warm and trusted friends none stood readier than they to rally to his support none more willing to lend a helping hand lincoln appreciated their friendship and support and in after years proved his gratitude by saving one member of the family from the gallows the business done over offutt's counter gave his clerk frequent intervals of rest so that if so inclined an abundance of time for study was always at his disposal lincoln had long before realized the deficiencies of his education and resolved now that the conditions were favorable to atone for early neglect by a course of study nothing was more apparent to him than his limited knowledge of language and the proper way of expressing his ideas moreover it may be said that he appreciated his inefficiency in a rhetorical sense and therefore determined to overcome all these obstacles by mastering the intricacies of grammatical construction acting on the advice of mentor graham he hunted up one vayner who was the reputed owner of kirkham's grammar and after a walk of several miles returned to the store with a coveted volume under his arm with zealous perseverance he at once applied himself to the book sometimes he would stretch out at full length on the counter his head propped up on a stack of calico prints studying it or he would steal away to the shade of some inviting tree and there spend hours at a time in a determined effort to fix in his mind the arbitrary rule that adverbs qualify verbs adjectives and other adverbs from the vapidity of grammar it was now and then a great relaxation to turn to the more agreeable subject of mathematics and he might often have been seen lying face downwards stretched out over six feet of grass figuring out on scraps of paper some problem given for solution by a quizzical store lounger or endeavoring to prove that multiplying the denominator of a fraction divides it while dividing the denominator multiplies it rather a poor prospect one is forced to admit for a successful man of business at this point in my narrative i am pained to drop from further notice our buoyant and effusive friend offit his business ventures failing to yield the extensive returns he predicted and too many of his obligations maturing at the same time he was forced to pay the penalty of commercial delinquency and went to the wall he soon disappeared from the village and the inhabitants thereof never knew whither he went in the significant language of lincoln he petered out as late as eighteen seventy three i received a letter from dr james hall a physician living at st denis near baltimore maryland who referring to the disappearance of offutt relates the following reminiscence of what consequence to know or learn more of offutt i cannot imagine but be assured he turned up after leaving new salem on meeting the name it seemed familiar but i could not locate him finally i fished up from memory that some twenty-five years ago one denton offutt 
appeared in baltimore hailing from kentucky advertising himself in the city papers as a veterinary surgeon and horse tamer professing to have a secret to whisper in the horse's ear or a secret manner of whispering in his ear which he could communicate to others and by which the most refractory and vicious horse could be quieted and controlled for this secret he charged five dollars binding the recipient by oath not to divulge it i know several persons young fancy horsemen who paid for the trick offit advertised himself not only through the press but by his strange attire he appeared in the streets on horseback and on foot in plain citizen's dress of black but with a broad sash across the right shoulder of various colored ribbons crossed on his left hip under a large rosette of the same material the whole rendering his appearance most ludicrously conspicuous having occasion to purchase a horse i encountered him at several of our stables and was strongly urged to avail myself of his secret so much for offit but were he living in sixty one i doubt not mr lincoln would have heard of him the early spring of eighteen thirty two brought to springfield and new salem a most joyful announcement it was the news of the coming of a steamboat down the sangamon river proof incontestable that the stream was navigable the enterprise was undertaken and carried through by captain vincent bogue of springfield who had gone to cincinnati to procure a vessel and thus settle the much mooted question of the river's navigability when therefore he notified the people of his town that the steamboat talisman would put out from cincinnati for springfield we can well imagine what great excitement and unbounded enthusiasm followed the announcement springfield new salem and all the other towns along the now interesting sangamon were to be connected by water with the outside world public meetings with the accompaniment of long subscription lists were held the merchants of springfield advertised the arrival of goods direct from the east per steamboat talisman the mails were promised as often as once a week from the same direction all the land adjoining each enterprising and aspiring village along the river was subdivided into town lots in fact the whole region began to feel the stimulating effects of what in later days would have been called a boom i remember the occasion well for two reasons it was my first sight of a steamboat and also the first time i ever saw mr lincoln although i never became acquainted with him till his second race for the legislature in eighteen thirty four in response to the suggestion of captain bogue made from cincinnati a number of citizens among the number lincoln had gone down the river to beardstown to meet the vessel as she emerged from the illinois these were armed with axes having long handles to cut away as bogue had recommended branches of trees hanging over from the banks after having passed new salem i and other boys on horseback followed the boat riding along the river's bank as far as bogue's mill where she tied up there we went aboard and lost in boyish wonder feasted our eyes on the splendor of her interior decorations the sangamon journal of that period contains numerous poetical efforts celebrating the talisman's arrival a few lines under date of april five eighteen thirty two unsigned but supposed to have been the product of a local poet one oliphant were sung to the tune of clare de kitchen i cannot refrain from inflicting a stanza or two of this ode on the reader o oh, captain bogue he gave the load and captain bogue he showed the road 
and we came up with a right good will and tied our boat up to his mill now we are up the sangamo and here we'll have a grand hurrah so fill your glasses to the brim of whiskey brandy wine and gin illinois suckers young and raw were strong along the sangamo to see a boat come up by stream they surely thought it was a dream on its arrival at springfield or as near springfield as the river ran the crew of the boat were given a reception and dance in the courthouse the cream of the town society attended to pay their respects to the newly arrived guests the captain in charge of the boat not captain bogue but a vainly dressed fellow from the east was accompanied by a woman more gaudily attired than himself whom he introduced as his wife of course the most considerate attention was shown them both until later in the evening when it became apparent that the gallant officer and his fair partner had imbibed too freely for in those days we had plenty of good cheer and were becoming unpleasantly demonstrative in their actions this breach of good manners openly offended the high-toned nature of springfield's fair ladies but not more than the lamentable fact which they learned on the following day that the captain's partner was not his wife after all but a woman of doubtful reputation whom he had brought with him from some place further east but to the return of the talisman that now interesting vessel lay for a week longer at bogue's mill when the receding waters admonished her officers that unless they purposed spending the remainder of the year there they must head her downstream in this emergency recourse was had to my cousin rowan herndon who had had no little experience as a boatman and who recommended the employment of lincoln as a skilful assistant these two inland navigators undertook therefore the contract of piloting the vessel which had now become elephantine in proportions through the uncertain channel of the sangamon to the illinois river the average speed was four miles a day at new salem safe passage over the mill dam was deemed impossible unless the same could be lowered or a portion removed to this cameron and rutledge owners of the mill entered their most strenuous protest the boat's officers responded that under the federal constitution and laws no one had the right to dam up or in any way obstruct a navigable stream and they argued that as they had just demonstrated that the sagamon was navigable they proposed to remove enough of the obstruction to let the boat through rowan herndon describing it to me in eighteen sixty five said when we struck the dam she hung we then backed off and threw the anchor over we tore away part of the dam and raising stream ran her over on the first trial the entire proceeding stirred up no little feeling in which mill owners boat officers and passengers took part the effect the return trip of the talisman had on those who believed in the successful navigation of the sangamon is shrewdly indicated by the pilot who with laconic complacency adds as soon as she was over the company that chartered her was done with her lincoln and herndon in charge of the vessel piloted her through to beardstown there they were paid forty dollars each according to contract and bidding adieu to the talisman's officers and crew set out on foot for new salem again a few months later the talisman caught fire at the wharf in st louis and went up in flames the experiment of establishing a steamboat line to springfield proved an unfortunate venture for its projector captain bogue 
finding himself unable to meet his rapidly maturing obligations incurred in aid of the enterprise it is presumed that he left the country for the journal of that period is filled with notices of attachment proceedings brought by vigilant creditors who had levied on his goods end of section five